1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He's talking about the resurrection. He has already spoken about the resurrection of Christ. And here as we come to these later verses, he's really focusing in on the resurrection of the believer. Those who believe in Jesus Christ. You see, the issue or the problem was that some people in Corinth had come to embrace the idea that there is no such thing as the resurrection of the believer. And to combat this thinking, Paul has made the following argument to this point in 1 Corinthians 15. He started out with just the basic gospel message. And essentially he's saying, how can you say there's no resurrection? The basic gospel message in there in verse 3 for you says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. So Christ himself proves there's such a thing as a resurrection. But he went on to say, and he told us the consequences of what would happen if we don't believe in a resurrection. He said, if this is not true, if there's no resurrection, he said, then the message that we've been preaching is false. We've been lying to the people. It would all be a lie. In fact, if Christ did not rise from the dead, he would say, your faith is in vain. In other words, it's futile. It's wasted. If, in fact, he didn't rise from the dead, he would say, then you're still in your sins. Your sins aren't forgiven. Furthermore, all of those who died in Christ before you, well, they've just eternally perished, never to be heard from, never to be seen, never, never any purpose beyond the death that they just died. And then Paul would say about those group of people that believe in the resurrection, if in fact there is no resurrection, he would say, you're a bunch of pitiful people. Pitiable, he would call it. He goes, you're, you're wasting your time. You're believing something that doesn't exist. He would say, that's foolish. But Paul went on to prove there was a resurrection. He proved that by the many witnesses he called. He pointed to over 500 witnesses who saw Christ, risen Christ, who saw him after he had rose from the dead. He pointed to at least six different occurrences, including all the apostles who went to their death for the resurrection. He pointed to the evidence that was available to them. He proved the resurrection. And with the resurrection of Christ firmly proven, Paul stated, he said, Christ has risen from the dead. Amen. Christ has risen from the dead. And he went on to say, he's become our first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have passed away before us in Christ. By one man, Adam, sin and death came into the world. Also by one man, Jesus, everybody in Christ will be made alive. Now as we come to verse 35, towards the latter part of this chapter, Paul's anticipating some doubts, some questions about this resurrection that he's preaching to them. He knows what they would be thinking. They're going to wonder questions like, how exactly are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? This morning, Paul's going to answer these questions as we finish up this chapter. But I've got to give you a warning. Have you ever heard of rollover minutes? Rollover, like in your cell phone. Remember they had rollover minutes? Okay, this morning I have rollover sermon minutes. You say, what does that mean? It means that last week I went five minutes short. Because I usually shoot for about 45 minutes. So this week I get to add that five minutes onto this week's message, okay? So, and then... So we're going to go a little bit long today. Not too much longer, but we're going to go a little long. I just want to warn you. And I, I take the time. I, I generally pre prepare my messages for about 45 minutes, 40 to, 40, 40 to 50 minutes, somewhere in that range. From time to time, it goes a little bit longer. And the reason is I can't just stop in the middle once I start this section. If I just stopped in the middle, it would be too confusing. So bear with me. If you say, oh, I can't go longer. If you have to leave, that's okay. It's not a big deal. I won't call you out or stop you. And why might? Hey, where are you going? No, I, won't do, I wouldn't do that. 
So just be aware that we're going to go just a little bit longer than we usually do this morning because I think it's important that we cover the rest of this chapter and I don't want to just skim through something that I think is very important for us to understand. So look at verse 35. Follow along as I begin reading in 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, that thing that will come up, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. As I said, the Greeks believed that there was no resurrection of the human body. They believed it was impossible because they couldn't understand how it would happen. Here's what they thought. They thought that if a believer died, that believer would then be buried into the ground, and they didn't have caskets and embalming and, and you know, vaults and all that stuff that we have today, and their body would become uh, fertilizer, I guess you could say, or, or it would become absorbed into the ground. Then that grass would then grow up, and part of the atoms from their body would go into the body. Now, they didn't know what atoms were, but they, they, the part of their body would go into the grass. The cow would come eat the grass. The cow would then be killed. The man would eat the cow, and all of a sudden, we're all somehow have all of our bodies are intermixed. So whose body would it be in the resurrection? And you go, huh? Where do they get that kind of thing? I want you to know how Paul, look what Paul says to him. I like Paul's response. He says, you fool. <laughs> you fool. That's what they believed. He says, that's foolish. That's just, in other words, that's stupid. That's dumb. Well, why is that so foolish? Because God doesn't need every part of your body to give you a resurrected body. He doesn't need to put your atoms all back together one by one. In fact, we know through science today that a single human cell contains all of the DNA that's within your human body. So technically, if he had one cell, he could create a replica. Oh, it's much greater than that because God doesn't even need a cell. Because God knows you so personally, all of your DNA is on his mind. He knows how he made you. He can fix you. He can make you. He doesn't need anything from you. So their logic was, was silly. And Paul says, you fool. Paul's saying resurrection requires death. How can you resurrect if you're not death? It's not reconstruction. It's resurrection. How glorious is that? The Bible doesn't tell us that God will put all the pieces back together. Yes, there's a continuity. It's, it's our physical body that is turned into a spiritual body. It's changed, but it's not identical. It's not the same body. It's going to be much better. It's a spiritual body. You see, your spiritual body will not be just like your earthly body. I think that's a good thing, don't you? Yeah, that's a benefit. <coughs> to illustrate the miracle that Paul's talking about here, he's going to give us three analogies to make it easy for us to understand. Some people get too in-depth in these, and they take them. They try to dive too deep, but we're just going to keep it real simple. In verses 36 through 38, Paul is going to say, listen, our spiritual bodies, we're like seeds. We die, then we grow. Okay? In verses 39, he's going to talk about the different kinds of flesh that were given for different kinds of environments. Then in verse 40 to 41, he's going to speak about the glory, the beauty of different bodies, different things. So pick up with me in verse 37. He says, what you sow, you do not sow that the body shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. In other words, what he's saying, he says, listen, when you sow a seed, when you plant your garden this spring, and I hope it comes quick, but when you plant your garden, you don't expect another seed to grow up, do you? 
No, you don't say, well, I just grew a bigger seed. And then I put it in the ground, I grow it up. No, you, what, what happens? He says, when you sow your seed, it dies, it's watered, it germinates. And what grows up? A plant. What does that plant contain? Many more seeds to reproduce itself. And Paul says our resurrection is similar to that. As, he said, also, when you plant one seed, you expect a different plant to grow. If you sow corn, if you plant corn, do you expect wheat to grow? No, that would be silly. But he's telling us the seed dies from that death comes life. And our, our body is the same way. We're all going to die some way. The statistics prove it. 10 out of 10 people die. It's happening. It's coming. It's part of our life. It's part of, we all know it's coming. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it. But Paul says that death for a believer will bring a resurrection, will bring a spiritual body. Even though our resurrection, our resurrected bodies will come from our present bodies, we should not expect that they'll be the same bodies or just somehow new and improved bodies. They're going to be spiritual bodies. And the second analogy Paul uses here uh, refers to different kinds of flesh. Look at verse 39. He says this. He said, all flesh is not the same flesh, and, and, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another, fle another of fish, and another of birds. And when he talks about flesh there, he's referring to our bodies, our physical bodies, our flesh, your skin, the, the thing that's holding you all together right now. It's your skin. It's your flesh. God created different types of bodies, different fleshes for different things, right? He created a bird, and a bird needs hollow bones and aerodynamics to fly. None of you are out there with feathers uh, stuck sticking out. Well, maybe some of you are, but I hope not. But we're not born with feathers. We don't have feathers on our body. Why? Because we don't live in the environment that a bird lives. In the grander sense, we do, but we don't jump out of trees and build nests. They need the feathers. We don't need the feathers in our environment. A fish has a certain body that helps it survive underwater. We don't have that. Why? Because we don't need that. A body that is suitable for one ecosystem may not be adaptable to another. And Paul's taking this and he's tying it together. He's saying, our creator fits all life with the body that is perfectly suitable for it and its environment. And he's going to tie that better. Think of it this way. If God is able to make different kinds of body for men and animals and fish and birds, why can't he make a different kind of body for us at the resurrection? He can, and it's going to be suitable. It's going to be perfectly fit for us to live in in eternity. Isn't that great? That's not impossible for God. It makes sense. Not only are there earthly bodies, Paul also tells us there in verse 40, he's going to tell us about this third analogy, or heavenly bodies. Look what he says. He says, there are also celestial bodies, terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. Isn't that cool? We didn't, all we see is the little light up there. But God says, no, they differ in glory. There are different bodies or structures in the universe. There's the sun, the moon, the stars. And each is created with its own glory. Each one has its own glory. Each is suited to its own particular environment, wherever it's existing. And while our present bodies, where we're, what we're all sitting in here this morning, is suitable for our environment here of time and here on this earth, our resurrected bodies will be suitable for eternity in heaven. And each will have its own glory. And when it talks about that, some people think, wait, 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 wait. Each of our heavenly bodies, each of our spiritual bodies are going to have its own glory. Does that mean one might be more glorified than another? Well, it could mean that. It's possible. And some people believe that. But we don't know that for sure. We're not going to find that out until we get here. Either way, I assure you, whatever heavenly body you get because of your faith in Jesus Christ will be a lot better than the earthly body. How about that? 
Praise God, right? Let me review a couple of Paul's points in these analogies. Here's what he's saying. If I lost you, I'm going to make it real easy. Just as this seed dies, and then it grows into something beautiful and useful, producing more seeds, so will we at the resurrection. And just like the birds, the fish, and the humans have, have the flesh that's perfect for the environment they live in now, so will we have the body that's perfect for the environment we'll be living in then. And just like the sun, the moon, the stars are all glorious, even though their glory may differ one from another, it'll be just like us. We'll be the same. We'll, so might ours be in the resurrection. We will be the same way in the resurrection. Now, I realize these illustrations may not answer every question we have about the resurrected body, but what they do is they give us the assurances we need. We're going to have everything we need. God will give us a glorified body suited to the new life in heaven, in eternity with him. It will be unlike our present body. We will use this new body to serve and glorify God for all of eternity. This is the hope of a believer. This is what we hope in. Look what verse 42 says. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. I like this. Paul says, I, I know, it's like Paul saying, listen, I know you guys still aren't getting it. But let me just contrast spiritual body versus earthly body. Let me just see if I can contrast. One's corrupt, it's going to be raised in incorruption. One's dishonorable, it's going to be raised in honor. Your earthly body is weak, your spiritual body is going to be powerful. One's a natural body and one's a spiritual body. I don't know about you, but I think the spiritual body sounds a whole lot better. And I can't wait to get one someday. Let it sink in. As Christians, someday we're going to be raised in incorruption. Someday you're going to be raised in glory. Someday you're going to be raised in power. The things that hurt us so badly here be done away with. The spiritual body sounds so much better. Listen to how Charles, you guys know I like Charles Spurgeon, right? Listen to what he says. He says this. The righteous are put into their graves all weary and worn. But as such, they will not rise. They go there with a furrowed brow, the hollowed cheek and the wrinkled skin, but they shall wake up in beauty and glory. Oh, we long for that. Look at verse 45 as Paul ties it back to Adam like he did earlier. Verse 45, so it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a Life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. That's Jesus, the second Adam. And was the man of dust, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, that's the believers, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. The first man, Adam, he brought sin and he gave us one kind of body. You're living in it. It's going to decay. It's going to get older. It's going to come to a point someday, unless the Lord returns, 
that it will die, that you will take your last breath on earth. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, when he came, he gave us another kind of body available to us upon our death, an eternal body, a spiritual body, one that would not be corrupted, one that would be powerful, incorruptible, glorious, is what he's saying. That's why he's called there in verse 45, a life-giving spirit. From the first Adam, we're made of dust. Why? Because we live on this earth. It's where we are. But from the last Adam, we're going to be made for eternity. Because that's where we will be. For believers, this promise is true. It's sure. It's rock solid. You can count on it. Look what he says in verse 49. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Paul wrote it a different way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. It's not a question. He's making a statement. He says this, who, speaking of the Lord, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. He's going to transform us. He's going to transform this body into a heavenly body someday. Now, what's it going to look like? Well, after the resurrection, we got a glimpse of some things. We got a glimpse of how Christ looked, what he did, the things that he saw. The risen Christ was unhindered by time and space. Do you remember when he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus? He was talking, he was eating, he was sharing with them, and all of a sudden he's gone. Just disappeared. Had somewhere else to be and left. His, his work there was done. When he visited the disciples, what did he do? He walked through the door. Now, it doesn't mean walk through like, the language doesn't say he walked through like he opened it, went through. He literally walked through the door. He passed through the door without opening it. But yet, as he got in there, what did he say to Thomas? Thomas, touch me. Why? Because you could touch him. Thomas, put your fingers in my wounds. I know you're doubting, Thomas. Come, feel me. I want you to know this is really me. How cool is that? He was still flesh and bone. And he even ate with the disciples. He had fish, had breakfast with them one morning. He cooked it for them. His resurrected body, but was this, was, it was the same uh, somewhat appearance, but it had supernatural capabilities. It was a spiritual body. Now, if in Sunday school when you were a kid, you remember, in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. I just ruined your mansion. You go, what do you mean? Well, if I just told you about the spiritual body, you don't need a bedroom because you're not going to sleep. You don't need a kitchen because you no longer have to eat. I suppose you don't even need a bathroom. So what's left? The family room, where you can hang out and enjoy the fellowship with one another and with the Lord. And maybe you're even wondering, hey, why do we need a spiritual body? Why, why, why do we have to have that? Why, why is that important? Look at verse 50. He says, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Our present bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We can't get there. We're not made for it. That's why we need the spiritual ones. And here the word corruption isn't speaking of moral or ethical corruption. It means physical and material corruption. Our physical bodies, the body that you're sitting in this morning, is corrupted. You didn't need me to tell you that, did you? You guys already know that. They're subject to disease, to injury, to decay. We already know what's happening. The medical system is thriving. Why? Because they're trying to keep our body from uncorrupting. The health system, the, the supplements and the vitamins, they're thriving. Why? Because they're trying to keep us healthy and keep our body from decaying and keep our body from corrupting. And we want to keep that as long as we can. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
But in verse 51, look what Paul tells us. He says, behold. Now, you know, you know what it says, behold? You know what that means? Do you, you ever read a book and you start to, you know, maybe, maybe if, you, if you're like me, I'll start to read. I'm, I'm focused, but eventually my mind starts to wander. And it's like I get through a paragraph or two, I'm like, what did I just read? So behold means, all right, pay attention. It's like, wake up, come back, to, you know, focus in on this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That means die. That's another word for die. We shall not all sleep. But we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruption must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Now the word mystery. If you've been here for a while, you know what it means. If not, I want to explain it to you because it's very, very critical you understand. The word mystery in the English language means mystery like, I don't know who did it. It's a mystery. It's something that's unknown. It's a mystery. It's a, you know, who done it? You read a book, it's a mystery. You don't know what's happening. That's not what the Greek word for mystery is. It's mysterian. The Greek word means something different. And what that word means is it's something that was previously unknown or unknowable that has now been made known. You've been enlightened to this truth. It was an unknown thing, and now it's become known. It's something that cannot be understood unless it's been revealed to you. And Paul says, I'm about to tell you a mystery. About to, I'm, about, I'm about to reveal something to you that you didn't know or you couldn't have known, but I'm going to tell you what it is. What's the mystery, he says? We shall not all sleep. Not everybody's going to die. Oh, I hope I'm one of those. But we shall all be changed Paul's saying it's something in sometime in the future, there's coming a moment in time where some believers who are alive will be changed. And he says in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Now I need to give you some definitions. The word change, it means to alter the character or nature of something. To change, to, to, to alter the character of something, to completely change it. The word moment is an extremely short period of time. Literally a flash or an instant. And the word phrase there for twinkling of an eye means quickly, suddenly, literally the blink of an eye. Something quick, a moment, a twinkling of an eye. There's those of us that are alive will be changed. In other words, he's saying there's coming a day in the future when those Christians who are alive will be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. They will be transformed into their spiritual bodies, literally, instantly. I know what you're thinking. When will this happen? When, when, Paul, this, you, you've told us it's going to happen, but when will it happen? At the last trumpet. The dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. That's what he said, at the last trumpet. The dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. Leads us to the question, well, when is the last trumpet, Paul? Why don't you tell us that? Well, this is the question that will define your eschatology. This, this very question will define what you believe about end times. You see, some people believe... Uh, different things about end times. Some people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, which means Jesus will come back before the tribulation period in Revelation. He'll take the believers in Christ up to heaven. Then he will return after the tribulation, which is called the second coming of Christ. Don't mix up the two. Some people believe that Jesus will, uh, do, will rapture the church in the middle of the tribulation, partway through, halfway through, that Jesus will take the church out, the tribulation will continue, and then he'll return at the end of the tribulation for the second coming. 
Other people believe that there's a post-tribulation rapture, that at the end of the tribulation period in Revelation, Jesus will take the church out, and then he'll come right back again with them because that's what it says in the, for the second coming. And other people don't believe in the tribulation at all, or the, or the, or the rapture of the church. Some people don't believe at all. Okay, so depending on what your eschatology is, it's how you're going to answer this question. At least in my mind, Paul, when is this last trumpet that you're talking about? Because if we can figure out when the last trumpet is, then we can figure out what he's talking about here. Now, to do this, we have to travel around the scriptures a little bit. One of the things I do when I teach, I try to keep us focused in one area so we don't go back and forth. But I, I have to, we have to move a little bit this morning. I need you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So about five books to the right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as we get there and as I begin to read this, I want you to know, I want you to follow along, and I want you to keep in mind we're looking for some things that will help us determine when this last trumpet will come. We're looking for some things that might answer who's going to sound this last trumpet to give us some insight or some wisdom in this. So we're going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. about five books to the right verse 13 but I do not want you to be ignorant that means Paul wants you to understand brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep those who have died lest you sorrow as others who have no hope I'm in verse 14 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 verse 14 for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the gospel, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now, before we heard last trumpet, here we have trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And don't miss verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, let's look at a couple things here. He said there in verse 14, those who have previously died will be coming with Christ. Here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul also mentions a trumpet, but he says it's the trumpet of God. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 seem to me to be talking about the same thing. He says it in a different way, but he's sharing the same information. But what happens when this trumpet of God sounds? He gives us two things. He says the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain, number two, will be caught up together with those who have risen before them and meet them in the clouds. I want to talk about the dead in Christ first. You say, wait a minute, Rob, who's the dead in Christ? Is it when Christ comes back, all of a sudden the dead rise? How does that all work? Listen, when it comes to the, who these dead in Christ are, what's taking place, there's three common beliefs within Christianity, and you can choose whichever one you believe. Number one says some, believe, some people believe they don't have, well, let me say, say it differently. Some people believe that when a believer dies, they get a temporary body and they go to be with the Lord. And they won't receive their spiritual body until Christ returns for the rapture or what he's talking about here, to, to gather his church with him in the clouds. I don't believe that, but it's possible. Others believe that 
when a believer dies, their spirit goes to be with the Lord. But their body, they're, they're, they don't receive their spiritual body, and their fleshly body is what we put here in the grave. So they essentially say that we're, we're disembodied spirits. We're just kind of floating around out there for a while until this resurrection happens, until this rapture, or this, this incident that Paul's talking about here happens. I don't believe that either. I believe that when a believer takes their last breath, they receive their spiritual bodies. I believe that the moments you're done here on this earth, the, the, the dead in Christ are being risen. They're right, they're not, we, we who would be raptured are not preceding them. You get to pick which one you believe, but I personally believe that believers who die on this earth experience this resurrection immediately. You're not, you're not disembodied spirits. You're not, there's no temporary body. It's not like he, he ha, there's no temporary body necessary. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wants to clarify some things. And I think he makes it very clear in chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. Listen as I read this. He says, so we are always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, that's where we are this morning, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, which means we can't see him, not by sight. Verse 8 says, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Which says to me that the, when we are absent from this body, we are now present with the Lord. Now, why would he delay a spiritual body? I don't believe he would. I think what he's saying is once the believer passes away, once you take your last breath on this earth, you're going to be with the Lord, and I believe you will receive your spiritual body at that very moment, and you'll be waiting for the rest of us for that time coming that Paul's talking about here. Now, the second thing I want to look about, because maybe you're saying, well, I don't understand this whole rapture thing you mentioned. I didn't see that word in there somewhere. I want to talk to you about what it's the second thing Paul said. He said, those who are alive and remain when this trumpet of God sounds. What did he say about them? He says they will be caught up. They're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And this word caught up is important. This word caught up is where we get our word rapture from. And let me tell you where it comes from. The Greek word for caught up is harpazo. But if you were to read the Latin Vulgate of the scripture, the Latin word for caught up is rapturo. Most of our English languages come from the Latin. Rapturo produces our word rapture. And what it means, it's a snatching away. It's a sudden snatching. It's a seizing of something. It's a grabbing of something. And the difference is, at this point in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is saying you will be caught up You'll be rapturoed. You'll be snatched away to go where? To the clouds to meet with the Lord. The Lord's not coming to earth in 1 Thessalonians. He doesn't talk about it. He says we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. Now some people have taken this sudden snatching, this rapturo, or this caught up, and they've said, no, no, that's not talking about the rapture of a church. What that's talking about is the second coming of Christ. But that's the, and understand there's a difference in the Christian faith. As a Christian, I believe there's a rapture of the church. Throughout, throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, God always removed his people before he judged, judged them. Sodom and Gomorrah, people were removed before judgment was cast down. Before judgment was cast when, in Noah's day, we read Noah's great-grandfather was Enoch. It says he walked with God and was no more. I think that's a beautiful picture of the rapture of the church. And you look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They went into the fiery furnace for being Hebrews. Where was Daniel? Where was Daniel? He was with them. In the, he was in the Babylonian captivity. Why wasn't he thrown into the furnace? They, said, they suggest that he was away on the king's business. The king had taken him and put him somewhere safe so it wouldn't happen. 
I mean, that's a picture of the rapture of our church. So some people look at this sudden snatching away, and they say, well, no, it's the second coming of Christ. And to further investigate this event, we need to de determine two things. Number one, we need to know, when is this last trumpet of God mentioned in the Bible? Because we know it's signified by the last trumpet of God. When is that mentioned in the Bible? And is it reference to the rapture of the church or the second coming? So we need to look, where's the, where's the Bible talk about this last, where do we see the last trumpet of God mentioned in the scriptures? And we need to ask ourselves, number two, what does the Bible say about the second coming of Christ? Does it line up with Paul's account here in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4? Or does it appear to be a completely different thing? Well, we're going to turn there. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. You see, if I were to skip over this, we could keep our study short. But it's important we see this. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle John is writing here in the book of Revelation. He's been ostracized to the, uh, the island of Patmos. They tried to kill him. They, church history says they tried to boil him in hot oil, but he wouldn't die. The scriptures tell us that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and the Lord revealed himself to him, and he began writing to the seven churches. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation uh, give our letters, seven letters to seven churches. These seven churches existed in John's day, they were in Asia Minor. They also represent seven periods of church history. And as we look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, I want you to follow along as I read it. He says, After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, speaking with me, saying, Come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this. John, here's a voice, like the first voice that he heard, like a trumpet. Now, is this the trumpet of God or is this a different trumpet? You need to go back to see what he says about the first voice. If you'll just turn back a little bit to Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, we're going to find out about this voice, the first voice that he heard. He says in Revelation 1 verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now listen to what the voice is saying. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned and I see the voice that spoke with me and having turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. Who could say I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last? Christ it's Jesus Christ talking to him so he heard the voice of a trumpet is it the trumpet of God I believe it is I believe that's what he's hearing the Lord is speaking to him and what did this voice tell John come up here come up here what did John look into the heaven and see an open door what did this voice say it said come up here come up here this is just what what happened in in first Thessalonians chapter 4 we are caught up we are brought up John didn't stay on the earth he says come up here why is he coming up here? Because he's going to watch the rest of the book of Revelation unfold from heaven. John's perspective is he's taking up into the heavens, and he's going to watch what happens throughout the rest of the book of Revelation from the heavenly perspective. I believe that's a beautiful picture of the church. A beautiful picture. God's going to keep his people from the judgment. They're going to be raptured. They're going to be caught up. They're going to be taken up into the heavens, and they're going to have a balcony view, if you will, as things unfold here on this earth. 
That's a picture of the rapture of the church. This is the last time the church is ever mentioned in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, John's taken up into heaven and no more mention of the church throughout the book of Revelation. You see, the rest of the book of Revelation will deal with the nation Israel. God's not done with Israel, contrary to what some people would believe. The rest of the book is going to be dealing with the nation of Israel. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what about the trumpet thing? What about the last trumpet of God? I know, you might be thinking, I know, wait a minute, Rob, there's other trumpets in the book of Revelation, and they come after this. I don't know. I remember there's seven trumpets that come after that. Yeah, there is. You're right. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. The seven trumpets are in Revelation chapter 8 through 11. We're just going to look at the seventh trumpet. And I want you to take notice of who's sounding the trumpet. Is it God speaking or is it somebody else speaking? Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, just a few pages to the right, says this. Then... Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Who sounded this trumpet? The angels did. The angels are sounding these trumpets. These aren't the trumpets of God. In fact, the last trumpet of God is what we hear in Revelation chapter 4, that voice that says, John, I want you to come up here. I want you to come up talk with me. We're going to watch it from up here. And then I'm when you, I want you to write these things down so the people that come after you will know about it. That's how we have the book of Revelation. Write the things that are, the things that have come, and the things that will be, he says. It's, it's the key to understanding Revelation. Okay, now let's answer this question. Is the second coming of Christ the same as what Paul is describing in 1 Thessalonians 4 and, and, and 1 Corinthians 15? So turn with me to the right some more. Revelation chapter 19. You guys are getting a workout this morning, aren't you? We should do like we do with the kids, Bible sword drills. We have braces, you know. Revelation 19. And I want you to, as you're listening to this, I want you to figure out, is this the same thing Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15? Or is this to appear to be a different event? Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his head were, on his head were many crowns, he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is obviously talking about Christ, he's coming from heaven on a white horse, clothed with the garment that's dipped in blood. But look who's with them in verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who's the armies in heaven? If you say it's the believers, you have to answer the question, how did we get there? Either we died to be with the Lord or we were raptured out. I believe that he's talking about the believers, the armies in heaven. Those are the people that either died before in Christ or came up in the rapture. That's who he's talking about there. How did we get there if that's us? Because you really can't say it's anybody else. Because who else has been clothed in fine linen? Who else has been made white and clean? It's certainly not Satan, because his future is yet to be told in the book of Revelation. It's coming. How did we get there? I believe we were raptured there, or we died in the Lord. 
it seems to me that that's not the same thing that Paul is describing in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, it's all about us. Here, it's all about him. You see, it's all about us in the two previous sections. He's calling us to him. Here, we're coming with him to conquer the earth. How cool is that? See how he's kind of linking it all together. Now, I know if you're, this is the first time you're hearing it, you're going, I'm a little confused. Stick with us. You'll, the more you hear it, the more you'll understand it. The, I encourage you to study it and, and learn it on your own. Armies in heaven, that's us. And I want to finish the passage because it's so beautiful. Look at verses 15 and 16. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of, and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. See, this is the second coming of Christ he's talking about. This is where he'll set up his throne in Jerusalem and, re and physically reign for a thousand years. He's coming back to get us, and then he's coming back with us to set up his kingdom there on Jerusalem. And you can continue reading on your own, but we don't, have to, we don't have time for it. So turn with me back to 1 Corinthians 15 to finish up this chapter and the beauty of it as Paul ties it together so beautifully. 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 50, I'm going to start in 50 just for context. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Your resurrected body is not a resurrected or a resuscitated corpse. It's a new order of life that will never die again. Death is defeated by resurrection. That's the hope that we have a believer. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said this, I will not fear thee, death. Why should I? Thou looks like a dragon, but your sting is gone. Your teeth are broken out like an old lion. Why should I fear you? I know thou art no more able to destroy me. But thou art sent as a messenger to conduct me to the golden gate where I shall enter and see my Savior's unveiled face forever. Wow. He went on to say, Expiring saints have often said that their last beds have been the best they have ever slept upon. How cool is that? You see, for a believer in Jesus Christ, death has lost its sting. It's, it's lost its sting. As Christians, it's not necessarily death that we fear. What is it? It's the process of death. It's the time frame. 
It's what goes on in the days and the weeks and the months and the years leading up to it. It can be painful. It can be difficult. It can be hard. It can, it can, it can just rock your world. It can even rock your faith sometimes. For a believer, yes, Rob, I know it's lost its sting. I know that we have a resurrected body coming. I know all those things, but how do I get through it when I'm suffering through it? How do I get to the end? We pray for the snatching away. We pray to get caught up so that we wouldn't have to face it, but sometimes that doesn't take place. So what do we do in the meantime? Look what verse 58 says. He tells us, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Don't forget the in the Lord part, because labor can be in vain. But labor in the Lord is not in vain. As the Apostle Paul came near to the end of his life, he was writing a letter to his friend and young protege, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, chapter chapter 4, verse 7, this is what he said to him. He said, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. People say to me sometimes, what do you tell somebody who's facing death? What do you tell somebody who's not going to make it? What do you tell somebody? You tell them to finish their race. You tell them exactly what Paul says in 58, stand fast, be immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in Christ is not in vain and your rewards await you on the other side. And you tell them that body is going to be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The moment you say goodbye to it here on this earth, you're going to be with him in forever. So any disabilities, any infirmities, all the things that we suffer here, all the corruption that our bodies have will be taken away momentarily. Is that not a glorious promise? Think about that. Oh, we miss that sometimes. We get so focused on our day-to-day life, we realize that. You tell them to stand fast, remain immovable, and abound in the work of the Lord, and know that their labor in the Lord has not been in vain, and the Lord will reward them for it. And they can look forward to it. May we all finish the race that's set before us. Before I close... I have to share one more thing with you. And I have to be very, very clear because I've painted a glorious picture for the believer in Jesus Christ. For the believer, we have the hope of this immortality, of this power, of this, of this uh, getting rid of our corruption, putting on, uh, uh, putting, getting rid of this corruptible body, putting on incorruption. We have that hope. But for the unbeliever, it's not your promise. You can't, you can't live by it. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon has to say to the unbeliever. He says, for those who are not in Jesus Christ, death still has a sting. It's still there. It hurts. The sting of death lay in this, that you've sinned. And you'll be summoned to appear before the God who you have offended. This is the sting of death to you. Those that are unconverted. Not that you're dying, but that after death, death, you'll stand in judgment And you must stand before the judge of the quick and the dead to receive a sentence for which the sins that you've committed against God himself. If you keep reading in the book of Revelation, you'll see what's called the white throne judgment. That's where that takes place for those who don't believe. And if someone were to say to me, Rob, I don't want to be that person. I am that person. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 3. I mean, chapter 15, verse 3. It's the gospel. Believe that he died for your sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. And you're not that person any longer. If you believe it in your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved, is what he said. And you live the rest of your life for 
Christ, you remain steadfast, you remain immovable, you finish the race set before you, then you too can have the promise of what we talked about this morning. It would be my prayer that we would all finish our race. We would all use this hope and this promise of these coming, this coming resurrection for us to get us through the difficult seasons of these days ahead of us. Because let's face it, life only gets harder, it doesn't get easier. And those that have lived longer can tell us how hard it gets and how quick it goes. You see, when you're young and you look ahead, you think, I got my whole life ahead of me. But you talk to someone who's older, 80s and 90s, and say, how quick does it go? How fast does it go? And they'll tell you it flies by. Eternity is not going to fly by. It'll be forever. It's just a matter of what condition you'll be in in eternity. Let's pray. Father, you've given those that believe in you a tremendous promise that may we not take it lightly. Lord, we know and we understand that corruption and illness and disease is something that we'll face on this earth, but may we also not forget that you've overcome this earth. You've conquered death. And that in you, vicariously, you took our sins. You paid for the price of my sins so I don't have to stand before the Lord someday. You've already done that for me. And I get the hope. Those that believe in you, all of us get the hope of this resurrection. Lord, I pray that every person here would have that hope. And I pray that this morning you would even open some eyes to that. That our focus wouldn't be on our decay, but it would be on our resurrection. That our focus wouldn't be on our earthly body would be on our spiritual body may we have that right perspective lord in jesus name amen